We did an episode earlier this month entitled, Where Were They Then? The Valuations of So-Called Overpriced Stocks That Went On to Rise More Than Any Others. Questions back on that. We always talk about investing in allocation and so-called ESG investing and questions back on that. And should you text from a car at all, even at a stoplight? A question on that. And more questions, questions, and our best answers. It must be the Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. You bet, this week on Rule Breaker Investing. The Motley Fool's Rule Breaker Investing Podcast thanks our sponsor this week, Data Site One from Merrill Corporation, the market leading due diligence app for the entire mergers and acquisitions life cycle, helping companies worldwide close more deals faster. To learn more and sign up for a free demo, go to MerrillCorp.com slash fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It was quite a month for RBI. This is our fifth podcast. That's right. That means this is one of those rare months where there are five Wednesdays. And in the first four, we did a review of Palooza to kick off this month. Looking back at 15 stocks, three separate five stock samplers, we did talk about more than a dozen stocks. So, presuming that's one reason we tune into Rule Breaker Investing every week, I hope you loved that. Uh, we went on from there to do the Where Were They Then look back with my friend Jim Mueller, looking at some of our best stock picks ever at The Motley Fool, and I hope in your portfolio too, and seeing just how truly in quotes, overpriced those stocks were when we first picked them, and yet they went on to be the best. We also had Victor Hoskins on here, who helped land Amazon's HQ2 in Northern Virginia. We talked about real estate investing with him and Matt Argusinger. And then last week, I got to share some of my thoughts, having spent a few weeks in China and Hong Kong. And lots back on all these topics, and so a lot to think about this mailbag. And as usual, I'll be joined by a few guest stars at different points through this time together this week. Really looking forward to having them back, including Jim Mueller, to talk more about where were they then, which was a significant source of questions we got this month. Well, before I go to our very first question, I do like to often lead off with some hot takes from Twitter. So I've got some sharebacks here. At Brandon Van Z said, OMG, I love this China episode, David. Admittedly, my favorite takeaway was, quotes, buy more Starbucks, but there were so many joyful moments in this podcast. My brother and I, Brandon says, traveled in China for a month back in 2007. So you had me laughing out loud about the personal space and the photo. Bits entertaining. Well, thank you very much at Brandon Van Z. My friend Jason Newman at JNew4 on Twitter. Thanks for the awesome China perspective at David G. Fool. Sparked a heightened curiosity for me. Also, couldn't help but think that the Chinese would love the Chicago Cubs. Why? Well, the first ever night game at Wrigley Field, Jason asserts, was played on 8 8 88. And the pushing and shoving in the building, my goodness. Well, Jason, I don't know if you were there that night, but I did check in with my friend Wikipedia just to double-check that fact. And indeed, it does look like August 8, 1988, after thousands of games over decades, Wrigley Field finally hosted its first night game. So, you're right, 8-8-88. And I do note, assuming Wikipedia has this right, that somewhat hilariously, given the Cubs and their fortunes, that special 
first ever night game was rained out after three and a half innings. So, anyway, thank you for flagging that, Jason. And yeah, if you are a Chinese national and you're looking for a baseball team, I would suggest you the Chicago Cubs. Lucky numbers. This next one from at Ahmed underscore Awami. My friend Ahmed, good to hear from you again. And Ahmed, you said, I enjoyed your podcast on China. Appreciate the positivity that most Westerns lack. You say, please, you go on, go to Russia next year. Well, we'll see about that. Thanks, Ahmed. Speaking of our interview with Victor Hoskins, got a number of notes about that. At Nate Purdom sums it up pretty well when he said, always great to hear at David G. Fool, and a special treat to hear at M. Argusinger. For the first time since, hashtag, I lost to Matt, says Nate Purdom. What resonated with me, he goes on, was Victor's approach. Start with what problem you're trying to solve. Good to hear others outside of my org, Nate says, use the same approach. And finally, again, among many exchanges on Twitter, at RBI Podcast is this podcast's Twitter handle among many exchanges was this one from my friend Austin Lieberman at Austin Lieb, who at one point in July said, I never imagined my investments making more dollars in a single day than my wife and I make in a month combined. That's the power of hashtag investing and hashtag compounding at The Motley Fool, Stock Advisor, and Rule Breaker Services, and at RBI Podcast are fantastic places to start. Thank you very much, Austin. Coming from you, that means a lot. And really happy to close it out on Twitter this week with what you received back from AtTheAnimal23, who went on to tell you that's far from bragging. AtTheAnimal23 wrote, It's inspirational and something for us home gamers to aspire to. Best part is, you show us that we don't have to be a professional or have an MBA to achieve this. That's why your message is so important to us. Please don't stop investing or teaching whether you're Austin Lieberman or anybody else out there. And I know a lot of our listeners and a lot of Motley Fool members do additional volunteer efforts in their communities, in different contexts, in and outside their families, to spread the awareness of the power of investing and compounding patients, finding great companies. I know we'll be talking about that a little bit more this hour, but it's such a pleasure just to see the interchange among different Motley Fool members and podcast listeners, and to see how we inspire each other. So, thank you for a really fun month. All right, Rule Breaker mailbag item number one. This one comes from one David to another. I am going to mention, we all have unconscious biases, and here at The Motley Fool, part of our culture, if you come to work for us one day, you'll probably go through a workshop about that, and you might be doing that or already have done that in your own place of work or outside of it. It's really good for us to be aware of our unconscious biases. It's also good for us to confess our conscious biases. Here's one of mine. If your first name is David, you probably have a slightly better chance of being featured on Mailbag. Because, because. This one's from David Lurier, writing from Canada. David G. from One David to Another, thanks for the great work you do on the RBI podcast. I'm a regular listener from Ottawa, Canada, and a Stock Advisor member. I really enjoyed your recent podcast about China, but wanted to respond to your point about countdown timers for traffic lights. First, no need to go to China to see these. Just pop up from your nation's capital, here in Washington, D.C., to ours, David writes, which, of course, would be Ottawa. 
and you'll see such timers on almost every corner. As you pointed out, this technology provides a great way to know when the light will be changing from green to yellow, allowing you to drive smarter and, hopefully, safer. David goes on, with safety in mind, I wanted to suggest one thing to you. You pointed out that this knowledge of when the lights will change could be very handy to allow drivers to send text messages when stopped at a red light. Perhaps the laws in your state or the United States in general are different, but in most places in Canada, it's simply against the law to use your cell phone via hands while driving, including when stopped at a light. When all your attention is focusing on your phone, it's not focused on your surroundings. All right, it goes on from there, but let me and this podcast make it very clear. Do not text from your car, whether you're in the U.S., Canada, or China, even when you're at a stoplight. Public service announcement triggered by my new friend, David Lurie. David, thank you for writing in. And I want to mention, I have been to that beautiful capital city, took my family there years ago to see Winterlude, which is sort of at the height of the wintry cold season. At the time, I had understood that Ottawa was the world's second coldest capital. The undisputed coldest country capital in the world is Mongolia's Ulaanbaatar. I thought that Ottawa was second, but it turns out, at least from the worldatlas.com Google search I made, you're actually seventh. Uh, It gets really, really cold in Ottawa in the winter, but I guess they do the coldest capital of over the course of the whole year. It's just the average temperature over the whole year, and so Moscow and a few others outrank you. Anyway, Chateau Laurier was a beautiful destination, and I esteem Ottawa and its stoplights and safe driving. Thank you, David Lurier. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number two. And oh my golly, look, it's Jim Mueller. Jim, welcome. Hey, David. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Now, Jim, you and I have gotten to know each other over the course of a decade or so, working together on Motley Fool's Stock Advisor. But a lot of others have gotten to know you as a voice on our different podcasts, including this one just a few weeks ago when we did Where Were They Then Together. I was here for that. I've been here for a couple of others. Uh, I was in a recent market foolery. So, yeah. Yes, indeed. And I enjoyed that as well because I listen to pretty much every market foolery. That's my drive over and back to Full HQ each day. Uh, Jim, we got a number of questions, as we probably would have expected, coming out of our conversation about where were they then. I did summarize it briefly earlier, but the purpose of that podcast, I hope everybody listening has already heard that one from a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to summarize. But we were asked by our listener, Darren Pryor, from Australia, to look back at some of our earliest great picks and look at the valuation metrics that they had, because you and I know that in general, they looked, quotes, overpriced or maybe, quotes, insanely overpriced that, back then. That is true. And that, um, and I do have to point out that is one of your rule breaker metrics is that uh, Wall Street thinks it's overpriced by traditional metrics. That's absolutely right. That is number six of the six traits of rule breaker companies. Number six, which is the special sauce, is <laughs> that everyone thinks it's overvalued. That's actually a really important bullish indicator for us. And I know that's ironic, especially if you're the Darren Priors of the world who were raised thinking differently. And we respect Buffett and Graham and other schools of thought. It's just that this is the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast, and that's how we roll. Well, sure. And, but, and to be fair, most people are introduced to investing by the value side. And and Buffett's and Graham's and uh, by 
a dollar for 80 cents if you can do so and all that. And that's that's fantastic. But there are many ways of success in investing. And the rule breaker philosophy is, as, as, as you've shown over the past, what, 15, 20 years, uh, is, is certainly one way for uh, really good investing results. Thank you, Jim. And you, you reminded me to mention, before I share rule breaker at Mailbag Item number 2, that The Motley Fool launched on America Online. We started in 1993 as a newsletter, as I've often said, just for our parents' friends. They were pretty much the only ones willing to pay us 48 bucks to get us started. <laughs> but about a year later, we launched on AOL in early days for this medium. It was August 4th, 1994, day one for keyword fool on AOL. We put $50,000 of our own real money in an account and said, we're going to invest this right out front of America online at the time. We think you can beat the stock market. We intend to show that. And that anniversary, 25 years later, is this upcoming week. So, fun to think back on the full port, how The Motley Fool launched. It was 25 years ago this week with that kind of rule breakery thought. In fact, one of our first buys that first day was AOL itself, which went on <laughs> to become a 150 bagger at its height over the next five to six years, which looked overvalued to many people all the way up. All right, well, here it is. And Jim, this one comes from our friend Darren Pryor. He writes, Hi, David and the fantastic crew at MF. Just wanted to say how chuffed I was when I heard this week's podcast, only to hear you dedicate an entire show to my recent email. I couldn't wait to tell my wife and kids, who were equally excited and who've consigned that episode to our family heirloom. In the unfortunate circumstance, Darren writes, of my untimely departure from the earth, they have promised to play that episode at my funeral to promote the kindness of one David Gardner. Now, that is over the top, Darren. I'm going to just urge Darren's family, please don't do that. There are so many more important and wonderful things to say. And may that uh, possible passing be long in coming. Thank you very much. Darren goes on, I very much appreciate the depth, the in-depth and thoughtful analysis that went into my question, which helped me immensely, on the one hand, but also left me, Jim, with another question on the other. So, many of the examples you highlighted in the podcast, Trade Desk, Netflix, Intuitive Surgical, Mercado Libre, were indeed trading at, he writes, nosebleed levels, in quotes, back then. However, today, such price-to-sales ratios afforded those stocks back then would seem today to be darn right cheap in comparison. He cites some cases in point companies like Zoom, Slack, Okta. He says his favorite Beyond Meat trading <laughs> recently at 90 plus times sales. So Darren presses the point a little bit further, Jim, and we're going to have a conversation now about it. At what point do such shares become just too expensive? If he could get 94 times sales for his business, he'd buy David Gardner. He says, My own personal Tesla factory is a thank you for my <laughs> guidance. Uh, cheers, David and MF team. Darren Pryor writing from the Gold Coast of Australia. And especially when uh, uh, value investors like Buffett and uh, one of my favorites, uh, James Montier of uh, GMO Capital now, um, say that buying something that more than one or two sales is, is outrageous. Um, and, I, and I can certainly understand that. But a lot of it, I think, depends on what type of business you're doing. If you're buying Ford or GM at 90 times sales, run away. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that, I don't think it's ever been priced that. Yeah, high. yeah, not not anywhere ever ever close. Right, but they're a big manufacturing company, uh, and so a, a price to sales ratio is is good for that. But when you're a, a company that isn't asset heavy, and uh, a lot of the names you mentioned uh, were are asset light and internet enabled. 
they can uh, generate a lot of revenue off of just a little bit of work and a few people. And so a higher price to sales multiple might be more warranted. Also remember that a uh, the market is forward-looking in that it is expecting more of these companies going forward, and if uh, and that the company is expected to grow its sales at a healthy enough clip to justify such a high price, uh, justify such a high multiple. Yeah. Now, Jim, you and I are the first to say we could be at a market top here in July of yeah. 2019. It may be that two years from now. Hope this podcast is still around, and if it is, and the market's been really weak, then we'll say, "Yeah, that was a little crazy there." Ninety-four times sales for yeah. Beyond Meat, which I think you and I both do think is crazy for yeah, Beyond that, Meat. Yeah, that one they really haven't proven their their model yet. But for longer longer standing companies where they've proven their model, uh, such as Netflix, uh, and they can grow their sales 30 percent a quarter. I mean, year over year, uh, quarter in quarter out. Yeah, then uh, they probably are justified to have a higher price to sales rate. Issue. Then the debate becomes how high right. or how low. And that's where we are right now. And certainly, interest rates, when interest rates are very low, that's yes. always going to raise up the price per sales, price per earnings we're willing to pay for stocks, Jim, because if we're getting like 1% from our bank account or just a few percentage points from our bonds, we're all going to say, well, I'd rather buy some stocks, and that's going to press prices up. That is definitely true. So, I think part of what you're saying, Jim, is not all companies are created equal. Ford will, alas, never for Ford and its shareholders ever trade at probably even 15 or 20 times sales, let alone yeah. 30 times sales. And yet, asset light businesses can go very high, even though they might be too high right now. And I'd like to mention one other point. Remember, all of these ratios are just shortcuts of evaluation, price-to-earnings, price-to-sales, EV to EBITDA, whatever metric floats your boat. It's just a shorthand to evaluation. And really, you, you uh, an investor should hopefully be looking at the company and understand the company and how it makes money and what levers it can pull and where uh, where it might uh, grow and what its optionality might be and uh, thus get a better sense of what is possible with the company and whether that high multiple might actually be warranted or a bit on the stretch side or even blowing out the water overvalued. Absolutely. And Jim, it reminds me to just double underline that point about uh, I think, especially beginning investors, they're taught to look at ratios and then not have much nuance from one industry right. to the next. Exactly. And, and different industries will have different ranges of ratios that are appropriate for that. That's right. And here's a helpful thing to look at uh, Darren Pryor, and, and I'll add in James Chen, who Sounded a similar note when he said, as the episode played on, I found myself almost shouting out loud, that wasn't expensive back then. Indeed, a cursory glance at his own portfolio, James Chen says, uh, will show that many positions are trading at a price to sales of around 30, which was three times higher than Intuitive Surgical, which we featured in that episode a few weeks ago, which was the highest of the price to sales ratios of the ones we featured back then. But a helpful number that I think a lot of us should take a look at is look at sales divided by number of employees. So, yeah. Jim kind of lightly referenced this earlier, but some businesses to generate a billion dollars in sales, let's say manufacturing, selling cars, 
need tens of thousands of employees to do that. Other businesses can generate a billion dollar sales thanks to the internet and digital with only a few hundred employees. There's a huge difference between those types of businesses and therefore how willing we should be to pay up Jim or not for their stocks. Most definitely. And that again ties into the different types of industries that you're looking for and, and what might be appropriate for one industry or what type of business or one type of business model is not appropriate for another. A, a SaaS company, a software as a service company, uh, has probably is justified with a higher price-to-sales or price-to-earnings ratio than a retailer uh, such as, uh, I want to say Bon Marche, but they're not public anymore, uh, Nordstrom, for instance, or uh, uh, or a car manufacturer or a, 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 a dam builder, a, a power plant builder. Yeah, infrastructure, uh, yep. Those all have their own different kinds of ranges. And one, one thing that many people like to do there is compare companies to others in their industry and see if one is out, uh, mispriced or uh, one way or the other. Right. But there, the assumption is that- the They market, should all be the same. Well, that, and that the market has correctly priced all the rest. Mm. So, maybe they're not pricing the rest correctly, and they priced yours correctly. So, mm, right. so, be careful with that, too. All right, good. And to close up and then move to number three, I just want to say to Darren, to James, and to everybody listening, that I don't spend a lot of time guessing where the market is in its cycles. A lot of people who do have been consistently wrong. I say every year I think the market's going up. Good news, I'm right two years out of three, which is a much higher batting average than most <laughs> investment prognosticators. What I will say, though, is that we benefit from investing every paycheck, every month, in good markets and in bad, and often you'll only figure that out years later. And so, dollar cost averaging with your savings and not guessing market cycles or are stocks high right now or not, for me, is not only a stress free approach, it's actually much more likely to give you success over time as an investor. Jim, I know that you regularly save and invest every single month. Oh, definitely. I, I, I want to raise one more point, if you don't mind, about behavior. Uh, beware of hindsight bias. Uh, one one of your uh, uh, emailers uh, said something about looking back. That wasn't expensive, but at the time, with the knowledge you knew then, it might very well have looked very expensive. And only now that we have more knowledge about what happened, can we look back and say, "Oh, of course, that's what was going to happen." No, that's not the case. You don't know what the future is going to be until it actually plays out. And that ties into your point about investing regularly, because if you try to invest when the market is down or or uh, and sell when the market is high. Well, the market might surprise you. It might uh, go down further, and you should have waited. Many people think, yeah. or you might, uh, and you uh, don't invest when it's high. Well, the market continues higher, and so you would have gotten a better price buying at a quote-unquote high price. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Well put, Jim. And important words. Okay, let's move to rule breaker mailbag item number three. This comes from Dixon Born. Dix, Dix, you wrote, big fan, Mr. Garter, big fan. Well, thank you. My question to you for this July mailbag is how to efficiently assess a company's sustainability profile and their social impact. ESG, environmental, social, governance, ratings vary so much, Dix writes. Most data is not very robust. I also try to avoid funds as they're too broad. They can be greenwashed. Direct investing in company stocks seems to me, Dix writes, the most impactful route. And I agree. I've been looking at board diversity, Glassdoor reviews. Any other tips? Dix asks. I just opened my first individual taxable investing account outside of my IRA, and I could use advice before funding. Well, really quickly, I just want to say to you, sir, you're doing what I do. I don't spend a lot of time looking at 
ESG ratings, because I do find that the assumptions that go behind the data that they collect are different in many cases. It's kind of like trying to figure out how you should eat based on the headlines about studies being done on red wine or ice cream <laughs> or whatever. seems like one month I read that red wine will extend my life, another month uh, it, it won't. The list goes on, gluten-free or not. And if you take the same approach to ESG, you're just going to get, I think, tied up into a pretzel trying to figure out what to do. So, rather than guess at data or which fund would be the right one for you, I, like you, Dix, prefer to invest directly in companies. I don't lump them all together into one group and say, well, they're all socially responsible or not. I think the nuance of how every company acts and what it does is different. The purpose of every company is different. How its employees feel, how all of its stakeholders feel. I have a conscious capitalism mindset. I would encourage you to take that directly to looking at the companies that you're looking at. And I like the path that you're on. But you go on from there to change the subject. And Jim, I want to hear your perspective here. Dixon writes, my second question, which might go beyond the scope of the Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. By the way, nothing goes beyond the scope of the Rule Breaker <laughs> Investing Mailbag. He goes on, is how a 22-year-old passionate dude such as myself should foray into the world of professional investing. He writes, I have recently obtained my bachelor's in economics. I need advice on next steps. Now that my grandpa has passed, he opened my first Roth IRA for me, and I wouldn't be asking you this question if it wasn't for him. Well, may his soul rest in peace. And what a wonderful gift. So, Dixon goes on, Jim. So, there are CPA, CFA certifications. However, I read many advisors are not even certified. There are MBA and other masters, which can be obtained at a university or online. There's internships, apprenticeships, and of course, there's the question of how to grow one's network. Any thoughts, he asks, on the future of financial planning, advising, analyzing as an industry, and how to enter it maybe around now? The answer really depends on what he wants to do. And so, my first bit of advice is think about where you would like to go. I mean, if you want to uh, manage people's money or advise them on how to invest or what insurance they might get, then you probably should go after a CFP, a certified financial planner. And the ethics of that uh, certification are very strong. And make sure that you put your your client's outcome ahead of your own. Right. And, so, Jim, is it fair so to say that if you're more socially minded, you like one-on-one relationships, you'd yeah. really like to connect in with people over the course of a financial advisory life, a CFP? A CFP would probably be a good start. Uh, but realize that kind of uh, business of uh, managing people's money also is a sales business because you are have to you're selling yourself and your advice and you need to be able to convince people to trust you enough to uh, put their money in your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're interested in more the analysis side and you might uh, you want to go to work for a, a fund or a, uh, a bank as an analyst, then I would probably say go for the CFA, which is Chartered Financial Analyst. And that is something awarded by the CFA Institute. I happen to have the charter myself. And what that does is gives you a broad foundation in many different types of investments, from equities to derivatives to bonds to alternatives to private equity, all kinds of stuff. Uh, so that you have a, a firm grounding in many different uh, areas, and also a high level of eth- ethics. The CFA Institute is very big on that. Trying to move Wall Street by uh, uh, chartering more and more people to move Wall Street towards uh, a better ethical uh, uh, performance and make more people fiduciaries, that is, th- your clients are more, more important than your own returns. Mm-hmm. 
that so much of Wall Street doesn't have, which you already uh, have kind of seen, that so many people don't have any sort of mm. uh, a charter or, or certification or anything right. like that. Yeah. So I, I like the way you're approaching this. Kind of what what are you solving for, Dixon, and anybody else listening? Do you want to manage clients? Do you want to manage money? Uh, do you want to become an expert in an industry, or if you want to come work for the Motley Fool one day? Maybe do you want to be a generalist or bring a separate professional background into our arena? I would say we've distinguished ourselves as a small company in a big world, financial services. We're the company that brings people that didn't get a CFA necessarily or CFP, but have really interesting backgrounds, and they bring those and that experience and perspective in to make them really good stock market watchers. Jim, what is your own highest degree in? Well, my own highest degree is in is a PhD in molecular biology and biochemistry, and I studied DNA repair and yeast as a model for humans, and that ties into cancer. Okay, <laughs> so that's what I did. And how does that help Motley Fool Stock Advisor? It helps. Well, it helps the Motley Fool and my career as a financial analyst now, in that I was trained as a scientist, and scientists analyze data, and. The stock market is full of data, and so I, I spend a good portion of my time trying to figure out what is good data, what's bad data, and then looking for patterns in the data. Why did the inventory go down? Why did yep. uh, accounts receivable go up or down? And so on and so forth. I really agree with what Char- Charlie Munger uh, has written about and has uh, spoken about so much in that you should read widely. Don't focus just on the financial media. Don't focus uh, just sure. on uh, <laughs> economics uh, mm-hmm. or, or something like that. Read history. Read uh, fiction. Read mysteries. Read biographies. Uh, read widely yep. and be interested in many different things because you'd be surprised how often something you saw over there in some other field can come back and influence and, and give you an insight into something today in whatever company you're looking at. And we'll close it off right there. Jim, thank you for that answer. And it does remind me, speaking of reading, to mention that this podcast every August does authors in August and in the next couple of weeks. We're going to have two books featured. The first is A More Beautiful Question by Warren Berger, a wide-ranging analysis by a so-called questionologist, The Power of Questions and How to Be Better at Business or Analyzing Data or Life. So I'm excited about that, and that's probably a book Charlie Munger might have enjoyed. And then in our second week, Natural Born Heroes by Christopher McDougall, a remarkable story of how the natives on Crete with some of the help of British intelligence, some of the geekiest spies you've ever heard about, kidnapped the Nazi general who was overseeing the logistics build-out as Crete got ready for Operation Barbarossa, which was, of course, the effort the Germans made to overrun Russia, which ultimately didn't work. But the story of physical fitness and Greek heroism and Crete will be shared with our new friend Chris McDougall in mid-August. So, there's a short reading list. Get on your horse if you haven't read both books, because we'll be featuring both of those authors to start August. All right, Rule Breaker Mailbag item number four. Jim, will you hang around for one more? Sure. Shall we welcome the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer, Andy Cross, into this group? Very kind. Very, very honored to be sitting between you two here in the studio. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for having me. You know, it's, uh, it's always a surprise when I find august personalities like both of you guys here, like in mid-July when other people might be at the beach. So, let me just quickly ask you, Andy, do you have any summer in your summer? Has it already happened or is it yet to come? you caught me in a good week. Next week, we're heading to northern Michigan for our annual 
um, vacation. So I'll be out for for um, a couple weeks, maybe. Spectacular. So, yes. and we are taping this, by the way, last Friday. So Andy is already in Michigan now. Andy, you are a Wolverine, are you not? I am. Yes, I am, yeah. David. That's my. By the way, that is my only degree. It's just from the University of Michigan. <laughs> I lack any of the great honors that uh, Jim has has earned. And like you, I'm just an undergraduate of another really big state university. Great. And our universities are some of the oldest and some of the True. best among all the state universities. Would you not agree I here would, in this I country? would definitely agree, David. I would like to point out that based on both of your own success, number of degrees does not correlate with <laughs> with massive success. Kind of you to say, but uh, we respect yes. we respect learning, Jim. And so, all right. So here we are, guys. Speaking of learning, let's learn a little bit with Jean-Philippe Levesque. So Jean-Philippe writes in, "Hi, David. I've been listening to the RBI podcast for the last year, and I love it. Well, thank you, Jean-Philippe. I'm on my way to listen to all available podcasts. Now, I think he means all available Motley, Motley Fool, Fool podcasts, podcasts, but he awesome. might mean he might mean all. Oh, that's that's oh, a, that's that is an undertaking. That, that's that Mount Everest. A, that yeah. is that's a trip. A, that's a graduate degree in so, itself. Jean-Philippe, <laughs> we may be misunderstanding, but if you are in fact purposing to listen to all available podcasts. Write us a year or two from now. I want to share your journey. That's amazing. He goes on to say, slightly more seriously, I am now a Motley Fool US and Canadian Stock Advisor member. I'm glad to say I'm beating both indices in the last year. Here's a question. I live in Quebec, Canada. I spent a little time in Quebec City within the last year, and it's so beautiful, that historic part of your hometown. Jean-Philippe, thank you very much. Typical recommendation for a stock portfolio is roughly one-third Canadian, one-third U.S., and one-third international to minimize foreign exchange risk and tax treatment of foreign investment. Now, Jean-Philippe goes on, however, the Canadian market is less than 4% of the world market and mostly made up of energy, finance, and material. These are not my favorite investment sectors. He goes on, at least we have Shopify, he adds an exclamation <laughs> point. Also, a lot of U.S. companies or U.S. listed companies, like, for example, Mercado Libre, are international. So, do you care, gentlemen? Fools all. Do we care about geographical diversification in our portfolios for his individual stocks portfolio? He's two thirds US, he says, and one third Canadian. There is a behavioral bias uh, that, that's involved in his question, too. So many people invest much more, uh, maybe not Jean Philippe, but so many people invest much more in their home country than in uh, external countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm one of them. I think every company I own is listed on a U.S. exchange. That's not that damaging if the the home country's exchange offers a wide range of uh, selections. That is true. But uh, France, for instance, is a, similarly a very small uh, portion. Australia, a very small portion of the world market. And so that can hurt you and can get you into too, too narrow a range. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with, uh, with you... Uh, diversifying yourself uh, outside like that, U.S. gives you a lot of uh, variety. Uh, internationally, gives you more variety. I, I think you're doing all right there. I think if you just look at, just say he said it, John Philippe's a member of Stock Advisor Canada, mm-hmm. where in which we offer a U.S. listed and a Canadian listed recommendations every month. So I think that balance, Jim, Jim is right. While we do have a home country bias. The Canadian market is so small and tends to be very focused in those markets that John Fleet mentioned, which in our minds are not the most exciting, greatest wealth-creating opportunities for any person in the world. Over the last 
10, 20 years, those have really been focused in the U.S. markets, and that's why we tend to concentrate mostly in there, besides mm -hmm. the fact that most of us live here. But we have a lot of global members who invest, and you can now invest much easier in the U.S. markets than you used to be able to. So, I would say, in general, um, the U.S. market continues to be one of the uh, most exciting places to invest because it has the best companies, and I think for that's not going to change in my mind anytime soon. So, having just got back from China myself, I recognize um, the importance of that economy, the number two GDP economy in the world. There are some great Chinese companies as well, and we've had them in our services. And I think, in particular, of Baidu, which has been a wonderful long-term performer, even though more recently it hasn't been greater. Just think about Tencent or Alibaba. These are really big, yes. world-shaping companies as well. Is it fair to say, as we conclude this one, gentlemen, that we're kind of we tend to be go-anywhere investors here at the Motley Fool? Show me the best company I can buy, and I'm going to buy it. I I think so, Jim. I mean, I I would say that we are looking for excellence wherever we go and wherever we can find that. Um, uh, David Mercado Libre is another one that is not located here in the U.S., but it's just been an exceptional um, recommendation of ours, and, and that is not um, focused primarily here in the U.S. So we're looking for excellence, and we will go where we can find that. I think that's that's been predominantly in the U.S. over the last 20 years. That's a fair point, uh, but also I think there's been a shift in the uh, in companies in themselves over the last 15, 20 years that uh, might not have uh, been taken into account by this kind of question. In that, uh, in your own country. Country, the idea was the the company gets most of its revenue from that country, mm -hmm. and now with today's uh, companies like Alphabets and Netflixes and Amazons and uh, GM and Toyota and all those Uber yep. Uber and and so forth. Uh, their revenue is much more international, and so they're not uh, exposed as much to the risk of like a recession in their own country. Really true. So, if you're really looking to diversify geographically, which I don't think we three purpose as a primary goal right. as investors, but if you are, maybe take a look at where their revenues are coming from, not just the market cap of where that company is based. Good All point. right? So, thank you. And Jim Mueller, thank you for joining us this week on Rule Breaker Investing. My pleasure. Really appreciate your insights. So, Andy, will you stick with me for a few, course. few points? Okay, good. Yes, love to. All right, Rule Breaker Mailbag, item number five. And now for something completely different. Yeah, we like to mix it up here. Anything goes <laughs> at Rule Breaker Investing, especially our mailbags. This one goes to uh, an area of the investment world, Andy, that we don't often talk about in this podcast, which is maybe why P.T. Lathrop wrote, Hey, fools, anyone want to help us understand preferred stocks? Mm. What role might they play? What pitfalls should anyone look for? Are they worth diversifying into at all? So, Andy, let's first define our term. Can you just kind of, as our chief investment sure. officer, knowledgeable about everything, <laughs> encyclopedically aware of everything in the investment world? Dave, that's, well, that's very kind to say. Um, I would say, there's a lot to this question, but the definition of preferred shares, they're kind of like a hybrid between the common stock, the stock that we typically know, yep. and a bond. And so, they are shares that are issued by a company as part of an allocation strategy uh, that offer a dividend payment a consistent dividend payment. They tend to be shorter term than bonds, um, and they have preference to the claim on the assets, both the income ahead of the common, as well as if something happens to the company and the company files for bankruptcy, they have a claim on the assets. So ahead that's of the, the preferred part of this, Andy. Exactly. That, that if things get really rough, and we sure hope this doesn't happen with stock recommendations we make, and we usually look at the balance sheets to make sure this wouldn't happen. But if things got really rough, preferred stockholders get paid off first in a bankrupt situation ahead of the rest of us poor lunks listening to Rule Breaker Investing and buying 
common stock. That's right. And the, the, the uh, another key difference is that the preferred the preferred stock, the shareholders, tend not to have voting rights. Most of them do not have voting rights like you do as a common shareholder, have a voting say in the company's um, uh, board of directors and their decisions. So the preferred doesn't have voting stock, but they have Mm -hmm. that claim on the assets. But the key thing is they they pay the dividend, and hence they're kind of considered more like a bond. And they're offered by banks, real estate investment trusts, uh, utilities, shipping companies, those kind of companies that tend to issue a lot more debt. Andy, have you ever owned a preferred stock? I have not. Nor have I. For whom are preferred stocks appropriate? Well, a lot of obviously a lot of institutions will buy them to kind of uh, help them get exposure to dividend payments but without the long-term um, resp- long the long terms like they do in a typical for a mm-hmm. bond mm-hmm. as well. Um, I would say uh, they are very um, uh, popular with yield-seeking, dividend-seeking uh, people who want to have the potential little bit of growth in the um, the security, like a stock, uh-huh. uh, so a little bit upside in the stock, but they really want and they really rely on those dividend payments. So really, if you're a, an income seeker, a yield hunter, preferred shares are potentially one investment vehicle for you. So some of the higher dividend yields that are paid are these preferred stocks. Usually, we're looking at higher yield, lower returning kinds of devices. That's right, David. Yeah, if you just look at I was just looking at some of the yielders. There we're talking some of their their 5, 6, 7, 8%. Yeah, I'm not per getting year, that with right? my like Ford stock, for example. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So they tend to yield much more than the common and and they have the uh, obviously they as we said, they have the um, the right to the earning stream uh, before the common as well, too. All right, this is probably like the only preferred stock talk we're going to have on this podcast <laughs> in 2019. It's not really how we roll, but Andy uh, for P.T. Lathrop and others of his or her ilk, what's a good resource to find out more about preferred stock? Well, I, David, I, I'll just go to The Fool. So, if you just search um, uh, in Google, sitefool.com, preferred shares, you will find a number of articles written about preferred okay. shares, what they are, how to think of them, with other links to other sites. So, I would just go there. Awesome. All right. Rule Breaker mailbag item number six. And this one comes from Andrew, another Australian. In this case, Andy, I'm looking at like three separate notes that we got to our RBI at fool.com mailbag address. So anybody who wants to be featured on this next month, if you want to drop us a note, story, etc., RBI at fool.com. Andrew really availed himself of this. And we're going to respect that effort by going over a few of the quick questions he asked. So the first one, Andy, he says, Hi, I'm Andrew. As my watch list grows, I see these stocks continue to outperform. Well, that's kind of nice. Congrats. I mean, if you're going to have a watch list, better than it outperforms. That's right. Even though you're just watching, True. probably than under. Okay, so he goes on. I currently have around 40 companies, and that's in his stock portfolio, and I have around 40 more on my watch slash buy list. So already invested in 40, yep. 40 more he's looking at. My question, Drew writes, is do I A, sell down current investments, make the purchases, and have smaller positions on all companies, or B, Wait until new capital is available and then slowly buy the additional 40. Now, as you think about your answer, Andy, he closes this short note, number one of three, with, You've entrenched me, which I think means we've kind of brainwashed him. <laughs> Maybe this is an Australian term, but in, in a good way. In a good way. You've good entrenched way. me, he writes, and I resent selling. Oh. He doesn't like yes. selling. So, 
What are our thoughts on his conundrum? Andrew, congratulations on being brainwashed by the Motley Fool on a brilliant principle, which is uh, we tend to sell our winners um, much too soon, and we trade. You um, mean we as investors, non-foolish, non-foolish investors? There's too many of the outside world. That's right. The outside world has brainwashed. Um, most uh, investors or uh, to be more traders than investors. So mm. congratulations on that. Um, I, I, of the two options, certainly b- would prefer the second one, which is um, if you really feel good about those 40 companies uh, and they match what you are looking for in a portfolio, I would I would encourage you not to think about selling them. Yep. Wait till you have capital that comes in. Um, if you are trading and balancing one company for another, that tends to just not work out historically. We've just talked to other members and and learned that personally. I have learned that personally. Mm-hmm. So I would prefer the second option, which is wait for new capital to come along. Awesome answer. Well, Drew had other questions. So here's the second one, Andy. In a separate email, he asked, what percentage of a salary should one aim to invest in the market? Uh, well, I think in general, 10% of a salary to put into savings uh, for, for a long-term um, nest egg is a good ambitious, is a good, is a good goal to have. Yeah. Uh, whether that goes into the stock market or into other investment vehicles is kind of more up to your personal preference mm-hmm. for uh, risk tolerance, your growth perspective, how you think about investing your savings. Uh, all of my savings do go into the stock market, one way or the other. Uh, so, uh, for me, it's 100%, but that's not for everybody. Yep. Just depends. Depends on what you, how you want to build that nest egg. But I think if you can get, as a starting point, ten uh, percent of your uh, salary into investing, you're going to be doing well off. Especially if you are starting young. Tithe yourself. Tithe your future. Make your future self happy. Looking back to now, saying, you know, he or she managed to save ten percent of every salary check, and and your future self will be really grateful for that. And what I like about that answer, Andy, is it's such a simple, it's like $1 in 10, and it's universal. Here we are speaking to Drew. He's halfway across the world in Australia. It's just as true in Zimbabwe as it is in Ottawa, and it's certainly true for us as Capital F Fools. Now, if you or I could save more than 10% of our salary, no one's going to stop you from doing that. That's right. The more we save, the better we invest, the more we'll have the more opportunity we'll have on this planet for ourselves, our families, our friends, and our causes. So, 10% for a lot of people is aspirational. We have people with student debt. We have a lot of people who have credit card debt. Always pay off high interest rate debt first. Those are the bad debts, especially credit card debt. But we respect and understand that people are coming from all over the map in terms of their individual financial situations. And as we think about answering Question number three. I want to welcome in Mark Reagan to join in this conversation. Mark, welcome. Thank you for having me. Hi, Mark. Uh, and Mark, the reason, well, we're going to talk spiffy pops in a sec, but mm-hmm. I'm thinking in particular, Mark, of what you've done for the first eight of your first nine months at the Motley Fool, which was answering questions, right, from callers like Drew with these mm-hmm. kinds of questions. Exactly. Uh, I spent my first eight months in the member services department fielding any and all questions I could. It's um, kind of like Rule Breaker awesome. Investing Mailbag 24-7. Exactly. <laughs> right. You actually know the answers. We're just kind of making it up on this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, and that's remarkable. Mark, could you just briefly give a little bit about your background? How did you find about, out about The Fool? Sure. So, funny enough, um, I, found about, I found out about The Motley Fool 8th grade, middle school. Um, my dad is a Motley Fool member, so I would log on to his um, account and just check it out because my mom awesome. told me, you make money with your hands, your mind, and your money. And I was like, how do you make money... With your money. That's a good so that's line. That's what she said. Investing. You make money with your hands, your mind, and your money. Exactly. I love that line. Very true. Um, 
Mark, you did you ever listen to Motley Fool podcasts? Listen to a lot of Motley Fool money in college. Going on a run, going to the gym. I'd hear Chris Hill's voice and the ding, 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 ding. Awesome. <laughs> Does that mean that Chris Hill has like this tiny little halo whenever you look at him? Is there a glow around someone like Chris Hill? When I came here to interview, I was like, ah, you know, if I see Chris Hill, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of fanboy. <laughs> Lo and behold, he comes off the elevator, and I go, oh my gosh, it is so cool to finally meet you. I, I love your voice, and he goes, oh, tell that to my kids. <laughs> <laughs> Great line. Okay, so Mark, um. Ten percent of your salary does that sound about right? It sounds aspirational. I know you're at an earlier stage of life than I am, and uh, it's not easy for a lot of people coming out of college to be saving ten percent. No, it's not. Um, especially living somewhere in, in Virginia, cost yeah. of living is a little higher. But yep. anything you can really. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. Awesome. And let me double check because I'm pretty sure Andy and I earlier mentioned that we went to large state universities. And Mark, where did you go to university? I am a graduate of the University of South Carolina. Go Gamecocks. Go All Cox. right. There is a debate between North Carolina and South Carolina as to who's the Carolina. You'll see people with a shirt that says <laughs> Carolina. I realize this is very kind of backyard, uh, irrelevant <laughs> to most of the rest of the world. Sure. But at least within that small area of the country, there's a little debate. I have no real dog in the fight. I, I love them both. There is. Um, <laughs> it is a bubble in of its own, um, especially South Carolina. It's either Clemson or, or South Carolina. Mm. It's pretty polarizing. Okay. <laughs> so, Do you think okay. that happens at like the Dakotas and the Virginia, like West Virginia, gotta, Virginia, gotta, I, North I think South Dakota? There's got to be a spit same, match between right? the Dakotas, yeah. don't you think? It must be. I don't hear that much, but we're all in our different That's bubbles true. in this world. Okay. <laughs> oh, and now before we go further with Mark, I need to mention. Mark Reagan is an Operations and Investor Relations Associate for 1623 Capital. That's a separate sister company of the Motley Fool LLC. He does not provide advisory services on behalf of 1623 Capital. The views expressed are Mark's and do not necessarily reflect the views of 1623 Capital or any of its affiliates. These comments, including commentary or opinions on securities, should not be relied upon as recommendations or investment advice. Nothing in this podcast or in Mark's statements should be construed as an offer for sale of securities. So, Mark, question number three from Drew. I wanted to have you in for this because he said, Hi, David, I've been investing in the market for around three years. So, this is this is still Drew. This is the third note from Drew. He even says hi again to me a third time. Hi, David. Uh, I've been investing in the market for around three years. During this time, I'm yet to have had a spiffy pop. Now, briefly, we'll define this term. I think many of our listeners know it. But a spiffy pop is when you make more money in a single day with a stock than you paid for that stock when you first bought it. So, for example, if you bought a $10 stock and you put $1,000 in it, and so, one future day, that stock in a single day goes up $11. Let's say it goes from 90 to 101, right? It was up $11 per share that day. You paid $10 per share way back when. You just had a spiffy pop. Not a pop. Now, other stocks pop, and especially this month, mm-hmm. stocks pop up or down on earnings. This is a spiffy pop. This is a horse of a different color. So, Mark, the reason I wanted to have you in, in addition to getting to share just a little bit of your own foolish journey, it's so great to have you with us, mm-hmm. um, is because you recently conducted an informal but still efforted study just on your part, probably thinking about people calling in and do you have data for them about our spiffy pops and some data around that. I did. So, I was listening to last month's mailbag. And someone emailed in saying, "Hey, I don't have any, you know, real data on spiffy pops. Do you guys?" And the answer was no. And I was like, 
Interesting. I think I could probably corral something very basic. Um, so I did. I went on to the Spiffy Pop page on our website. Yep. And you just can just Google Spiffy Pop and you'll find out there on the internet the landing page, which is a Motley Fool page, of course, but it defines Spiffy Pop and then it lists all of our historical Spiffy Pops. So that was some data, but nobody had the initiative or work hard mentality until you, Mark, to actually start crunching some numbers around this. Sure. And very basic crunching. Pulled you know, a couple of the stocks. Some of them didn't have the data, so I will preface this with saying it is Informal. not 100% kosher. Yep. So I pulled it, and there was a lot of data to run through because multiple spiffy pops between the stocks. So I said, all right, what was kind of the time frame between the initial recommendation, first time it was, and the first time it did spiffy pop? Mm. A lot less data to, to crunch there. So right. I was just pulling those, and what I was interested in was really just kind of the average price. When they were first recommended, okay, that came out to about fourteen dollars ninety cents, and then I was interested in okay, which one has done the most? Netflix. I don't mm-hmm. think that comes as a, a shock to anybody. And then also, the piece of data I found the most really validating, and this is the key for Drew. So Drew, everyone else, listen up. This is the punchline. It took each of them about six point two years to spiffy pop for the first time. So that was really validating for me because. We preach here at the Motley Fool that this is not a get rich quick game. It is in for the long haul. We love the three to five year minimum holding period. Mm. So, even further out than that, it's a waiting game. Um, you can't expect to spiffy pop mm-hmm. in a day, in a month, three years. It just takes time. And it's, it's nice to be reassured of that. Just buy stocks that you like, good stocks, good companies, and just be along for the ride. You bet. And I want to hasten to add that Mark's data there is looking at stocks that have spiffy popped. So, for anybody who would be at all confused about this, I want to make it really clear not every stock in the market uh, will make you more money in a single day 6.2 years after you bought it. This is for the ones that have. And I'm happy to say, I think last year for our members in our services, as an organization, we had over 50, five, zero, 50 spiffy pops. So, this is something that we have brought to the world and we've, I hope, made happen in your portfolio. But really clear, these are really special companies. These are the great performers that have spiffy popped. And on average, Mark's pointing out, Drew and everybody else, 6.2 years. It's pretty impressive, especially David, when you think, and Mark, when you think of the average holding period of uh, investors, certainly institutional mutual funds, well less than a year. So, so they tend just not to experience this, and they just don't see the benefits of holding because they're so worried about trading, trying to lock in little gains in here and there. But the way that we think about investing and the the beauty of this Biffy Pop is that you see that really come through, not for every company, but over years, and it takes those years, 6.2. And thank you for pulling that data, Mark. That's really that's sure. just great and fascinating. Well, Mark, thank you. I especially want to just praise the initiative that you took, because I'm the lazy bum who was just talking about Spiffy Pops, and we celebrate them, and I love to tweet out when it happens. But I hadn't taken the time, really, to look at it, and no one had. And I was the guy who answered no, I'm not really sure, to that mailbag question last sure. month. But you took the time on your own to just crunch the numbers, run it. And so that's why I wanted to have you on. And Mark, were you surprised by any of the companies? Had you heard of all of the ones that Spiffy popped? Throw us some color there. I had not. Um, some of the ones that stand out that I didn't know about were Vertex Pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. um, Monster Beverage at the time. I didn't even know it was public, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one that really interests me. 
Everybody loves Chipotle. They've had their ups and downs. That one I found was the highest initial recommendation. Was at sixty dollars and sixty cents. So yep, that's pretty sweet. So of all the ones that, so of all the ones you look through, that was the highest price one at the initial recommendation. Yeah, although I suspect I suspect some of this may factor in some splits, splits probably that yes. you might be yeah. averaging. So yeah. Netflix it's, might be looking like it's a three dollar stock yeah. when at the time, of course, it was more like a twenty five or thirty dollar stock. That's but, right. Um, but yeah. yeah, so maybe you have to factor that in with the price per yeah. share. But yeah, Chipotle cost basis sixty. Uh, that was Rule Breakers, October 18th of 2013. Yep. Awesome. Mark, thank you again, and good luck on your new journey. I know you're working, the disclaimer I read earlier, at 1623 Capital. That is a kind of a hedge fund that longtime Motley Fool advisor Jeff Fisher is, is working on. And I know you're part yes. of the team, and it's a sister company and Chinese firewall between what I do and what you do. So, Mark, <laughs> I may not see you for another nine months or so. Go Wave off at and the fishbowl. Just do don't th- knock on the glass. <laughs> Do that good thing. Thank you, Mark Reagan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Rule breaker mailbag. Not yet. It's time to thank Data Site One. Rule breaker investing. Thanks our sponsor this week, Data Site One from Merrill Corporation, the market leading due diligence app for the entire mergers and acquisitions life cycle, helping companies worldwide close more deals faster. Datasite One has simple intuitive uploading and document organization with drag-and-drop controls to organize your data room and powerful tools for managing folder and document access permissions. Datasite One is the only due diligence app with redaction and unredaction integration, helping manage this typically time-consuming process in half the time of standalone tools. Benefit from ironclad security, since multi-level controls and permissions prevent accidental information sharing, and advanced watermarking provides added security to documents. To learn more about Datasite One and sign up for a free demo, go to MerrillCorp.com. That's two R's, two L's, MerrillCorp.com slash fool. Speak to an expert at Datasite One like our team did and learn how to accelerate your due diligence. Again, that's M-E-R-R-I-L-L-C-O-R-P.com slash fool to sign up for a free personalized demo. We thank Merrill Corp for its support. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number seven. Oh my gosh, it's David Hansen, a returning guest to this podcast. David, welcome. It's good to be back. David, your role briefly stated for our listenership to get acquainted with David Hansen once again. Sure. Well, uh, well, David here and Andy, who's sitting next to me, Andy Cross, they work very closely with our investing team. I, I kind of sit on uh, behind the scenes, working on kind of the mechanics of our membership business and making sure our um, members can get into the services that are right for them and can can see can succeed on on their terms. Thank you. And David, how long have you been at The Fool now? Six years. What's been a highlight of your six years? And then, because we're all about both sides of the coin, what's been a low light of oh, your geez. six years? Uh, I mean, the highlight is is getting, I mean, not to kind of blow smoke at you guys, but <laughs> really getting access to the, to just incredible investing advice. And my portfolio, if I kind of go through it, is probably 92% Fool stocks. Wow. So, it's been great. obviously very rewarding for me. It's been a great uh, six years for the market, been an even better six years for our Motley Fool investing universe. So that's awesome. Yep. Thank you. That's obviously the, the the highlight when you can kind of do well and also um, kind of help so many members come in and find our services and succeed as well. Yep. Low light, geez, I don't know. I mean, 
when our when our stocked free food fridge is low on yogurt, <laughs> maybe that's the low light. There's not a lot of low lights here. I mean, we that keep it, true. we keep it pretty light here. It's it's a good place to work. And if anyone's listening and is looking for a job, we're, we have a lot of opening openings right now. So if you're yep. if you're interested in working for the fool, go to careers.fool.com for a small plug there. Great. We have uh, I don't know. We probably have. 50 jobs open right now. So we do. We've hired, join us. I think we've hired 79 people so far in 2018, which mm-hmm. is a new recent high. And it's exciting. So a lot of growth. It seems like we started growing when David Hansen showed up six wow. years ago. That's when the growth really started. Coincidence. Well, uh, we have a question from Greg Sable. Now, in the interest of time, I'm actually going to skip his whole question. Sorry, Greg, but go to his postscript where he wrote Bonus question Have you ever thought about making a student discount for the Fool's services? Greg goes on, I would love to subscribe. More to learn about the stocks you recommend and why you recommend them rather than actually invest yet based on it because I simply don't have enough income to cover all the stocks I already want to buy. Mm. I should mention the the wonderful question that I skipped was just included the description of Greg as a great saver. He he started when he was 16 and he's mm. listened to our podcasts and he puts away money through Schwab and Robin Hood and basically he has so much invested Guys, I guess this is a good problem to have that he doesn't even have enough to spend. He's trying to like should he, should he use his dividends? Maybe that's way he he would spend a little bit more money. He's saving and investing wow. so much. Impressive. So so this is a great problem to have anyway. But understandably, then Greg's like, hey, what about a student discount? Um, I simply don't have enough income right now to cover all the stocks I already want to buy. Unfortunately, this lack of income means. Justifying the cost of a subscription is rather challenging for me, at least at the prices that they are now. Now, David, I, I'm not a student. I know some of them. Most of the students I know don't necessarily have that much, sadly, interest or knowledge about the stock market. This company is trying to change that worldwide mm-hmm. every day. Um, I don't, do we have any student discount? We don't any now, but I mean, from my perspective, I, I think our services are an amazing value. I think call it the average price to get into a stock advisor rule breakers is going to be around $100. So sure, that's not that's not chump change that someone just got lying around between the couch cushions there, but for the value that you can get, I think $100 is you're you're going to be hard pressed to find a comparable service out there that has again, we've got full-time investing analysts on Andy's team here. What 44 of them? How many how many people yeah, are on you, investing well, team? Well, yeah, if you go go globally and around the world, it's it's probably north of 50. Yeah. So so you're you're getting Extremely high-level investing advice in our paid services, but I'll also just make a plug for our, our website, Fool.com. It's yep. the people who write for Fool.com. They're they're often contractors. They may not be full-time employees, but these are people who have been investing for sometimes forty years. So we have incredible resources that are completely free. And if you can kind of if you go through our website and find articles that you like, you can start to follow authors or people that that you might oh this is actually really good. I learned a lot from this article. You can start kind of tracking, hey, I want to follow this person. Yep. And when they like a stock, maybe that's maybe that gets you close to maybe it's not, hey, this is a stock that Andy Cross or David Gardner picked, but hey, this is this is free advice and and I'm learning along here. So I think whether you can spend zero dollars or a hundred dollars, I like to think we have something for students or, or really of anybody here. I think that's that's exactly what I was going to say, David. The, our, our, our analysts and writers at Fool.com in lots of different disciplines, not just stock investing, but savings and investing. And uh, We talked about preferred shares <laughs> earlier. There's information out there. But it is getting better and better and richer and richer with real good uh, writing and analysis around stocks and investing. And we actually have a pretty good relationship. The, the, the investing team that David and I work on has a very good relationship with so many of those writers and analysts who help us as well too. So there is a lot of information for yeah. anyone who doesn't want to necessarily or have the capital to make an investment in our services, which are great. And I agree with the value 
prop uh, point David made, but there's just the fool.com is a really great wealth of information for, for uh, a person looking to invest better. Yeah, and let me underline at least one resource that comes quickly to mind, and that's our 13 Steps to Investing Foolishly. So, this is a document we first pinned up on our site not long after we launched on AOL in August of 1994. Um, it probably needs some updating here and there from time to time, but it remains a tremendous short course. We'll get notes from somebody saying, I just finished my MBA last year. I learned more about investing in money in the three hours I just spent late last night reading through the 13 steps than I did my MBA. Well, in part, that's because an MBA is not initially designed to teach you about investing. It's designed to teach you about business. But the 13 steps to investing foolishly is a spectacular free resource on the internet. I guess I also, before we move on to our next one, I guess I also want to just double underline our podcasts, yes. like this one, and all of them. They are free. So I, I believe that The Motley Fool does more for investors for free worldwide than any other company that I can think of. And yet I still think we have a lot more that we can do and do better. Good news is we do get paid. We like to be paid. That's in part why we can offer a lot of free stuff. So that $100 base price, David Hansen, for Stock Advisor, I think has to be one of the great values in the investing world today. It's a market beating scorecard. You got picks from the brothers. It's just $100. A lot of people say, I made more than that in my first year. It's like you guys paid me to join Stock Advisor. Mm -hmm. So there's a plug, sure, from the home team. Thank you, Greg. But before we move on to number eight, special offer. Just for Greg. And Greg, you know your last name and you know how to reach out to us. David Hansen, you have graciously offered your own email address. Yeah, dhanson at fool.com. That's H A N S O N. And uh, because you took the time and we love your story, Greg, sorry to give it short shrift here, we'd love to offer you a complimentary first year of Motley Fool Stock Advisor. Again, this is just for Greg S. Uh, this time around, but uh, in support of getting as many young people and rewarding good behavior and getting them smarter, happier, and richer. Greg, we'd love to give you a one-year subscription to Molly Fool Stock Advisor. All right, well, we're just about to hit number eight, and David, I want you to hang with me for this one. Andy Cross, thank you for joining us this week on Rule Breaker Investing. David, always a pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I know you're having a great time right now in northern Michigan. It's not even clear to me how you did this podcast <laughs> this week. It's amazing how I did that. I'll tell you when I get back. David. Remarkable. All right, Rule Breaker mailbag item number eight, David Hansen. This one comes from Steve B., his screen name on is Daisy Dad, Stephen Brodeur. Thank you, Stephen, for this question. He writes, Recently, I called in to Fool Headquarters when I was debating signing up for Navigator 2019. That's a product that we offered for sale this summer. And the Fool at the other end of the line was not too informative about how I might judge the appropriateness of Navigator in my circumstances. Steve goes on, Now, I understand that you're not in the business of giving individual advice. However, having an idea of the appropriate target audience, say, experience, say, available capital, seems like something you would be experts at discussing. After all, these are your services. He says, I tried to walk through my reasoning and considerations about Navigator 2019 to try to come up with a value for a, quotes, minimum portfolio that would make sense for enrolling in the service. So, this is kind of the general thrust of the question and comments, David. He does say, you know, he had a similar issue with consideration of our options service during a previous marketing campaign. Can't figure out, based on how much somebody has and how much it costs, whether they should join this or that service. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think as a um, he, he mentioned not giving personalized advice, but as a general guideline, we, we like to try to keep it between 
no more than 2% of the amount of that you're going to be investing with us, your cost as a percentage of, of that overall amount. So, if you think about $100,000, we don't want you paying more than a couple thousand dollars with us, and even that's on the high end. But I would also kind of underline that ideally, we want people to judge their costs associated with getting our research over a longer time frame than just one year. Because I think one thing that's important to note with mm. our services, if it's a flat fee each year, not a percentage of your assets, hopefully we're helping you grow that portfolio over a three to five year time frame. So when you look back as a percentage of your overall portfolio, we want that to be well under 1%, ideally, if we're, if we're doing our job. And along the way, hopefully, you're being satisfied with the returns that we're helping you achieve. So, I think upfront, you want to stay well under that, that 2%. We don't want anyone kind of overextending um, unless they have a circumstance where they know, hey, I've got this money today, but I'm expecting to sell my house in a year and I'm going to have a large amount of money coming yes. in. So, it might, might make sense if you have um, more inflows coming in versus if you're someone who's retired and just has a fixed portfolio there. But uh, definitely want to underline the point of maybe get a spreadsheet out, map it out over five years, and with some rough ranges, obviously we never know what the market's going to do, but right. start to map out, well, what could my returns be, and what, is, what does that start to look like as a percentage of the portfolio? And I really appreciate you pointing that out. In fact, I think one of the reasons that I'm proud of the services that we offer through The Motley Fool is um, Sadly, for whatever reason, we've tended not to raise prices too much over the years. In some cases, not really at all. Or some cases, it seems like they go down. This is in direct contrast to the mutual fund industry, where if you're paying a percentage, let's say 1% of assets, every single year that fund rises, you are paying them more and more. Um, if you do the math on what stock advisors meant over the years, a lot of the time, uh, as you said, David, you're paying something, and then five years later, if you look at the returns that you got, you'll see that was a pretty good Return. I do like your emphasis on two percent or less. Mm -hmm. um, the the amount you're paying in investment fees and advice fees for your overall portfolio. That does imply, if you're paying us a hundred dollars for Stock Advisor, um, five thousand dollars might be a nice initial amount mm -hmm. to have uh, for a starter portfolio. That said, some people start with their first thousand and they pay us a hundred. It's it's each person's decision. One final consideration is that a lot of us pay money in the form of tuition. To things like universities, mm -hmm. in order to get smarter and advance us in life. Now, people are paying a lot of money, in my experience, whether it's a state or a private university these days, David, and uh, they're just paying that with no immediate return. So it does seem to me that sometimes, even if you're overpaying us a little bit, and this is no special pleading on my part, I want each person to make the best decision for them. But just think about how much you're paying in tuition mm -hmm. for other things. And here, I think if it means that you're paying a little bit extra that first year or two, I sure hope you're accelerating your learning in a way that will reward you the rest of your life. Yeah, not also just he mentioned the level of experience needed for many of our services, and he called out our option service, which which probably is the most kind of complex. Even then, the team that works on our option service they really take the time to break down the methodologies of what they're doing. It's mm. not it's not a swing trading service that's got new trades coming in every other day. Right. Um, so we do try to make everything we do uh, very approachable for all levels of investors, and uh, in something like Navigator twenty nineteen, I think I can confidently say you can go into that service with. Almost no investing experience, and you can you can follow the, the guidance and the advice pretty closely, and you won't feel like you're um, kind of out in the woods and trying to find your way out there. We we have we have great advisors and analysts, as you know, that you work with them, and they they're on the boards, they're helping people um, kind of understand what's out there. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say none of our stuff is geared towards someone who's an expert investor. We're trying to make this accessible to everyone.
Well put, and food for thought, not just for our new friend Stephen Brodeur, and I hope that was helpful, Steve, but for anybody who's thinking not just about Motley Fool Services, about any financial advice that you're paying for. What's your expected return? What percent of your assets does it represent? And does it feel good? And does it feel right? Is it rewarding for you from one year to the next? David Hansen, thank you once again for your time on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks for having me. Well, this was a very robust, a vigorous discussion across many different investing topics. It felt really investor heavy, this particular mailbag. Thanks to my guests, Jim Mueller, Andy Cross, Mark Reagan, and David Hansen. A reminder, August is upon us, and that means authors in August. So, this coming week, A More Beautiful Question by the author Warren Berger. It is a wonderful book, and if you have already read it and didn't know, he followed up with the book of Beautiful Questions, closely related. We'll be talking about questions, the power of questions, with one of the world's foremost questionologists next week on Rule Breaker Investing, then Natural Born Heroes coming the week after that. So, there are a couple of titles for your summer reading. So, read up and fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.